We turn once more in the Holy Scriptures to Luke chapter 24. We will begin reading at verse 13 and read through verse 49. The next part of the history, verses 36 through 49, will be our text. Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another, as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them, which were with us, went to the sepulcher, and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it, and brake, and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us? While he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. Here begins the verses of our text. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them 
and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Thus far we read the Holy Scriptures. It was late, Resurrection Sunday evening, likely after dusk, when the excited Cleopas and his companion finally arrived at the door. They made good time from Emmaus all the way back to Jerusalem. Their burning hearts quickened their steps. You can imagine that short of breath, they stand at the door and begin hammering upon that door, the door of the house where they knew the disciples were. They knew that because Cleopas and his companion had been there all day before they had taken their leave to return home to Emmaus. They hammer on the door, eager to tell the rest of the company what had just happened. The last portion of Luke that we looked at, verses 13 through 35, Jesus' appearance to Cleopas and his traveling companion. And the door is opened to them. Imagine the door opening just a little bit and someone peeking out through the crack. As John 20 verse 19 tells us, the 11, though really 10, because Thomas is absent, John tells us that, but 11 in our text is used to refer to the, the disciples of Jesus as well as the other followers were there too. Jesus' disciples and other followers are all there and the doors are shut and bolted For fear of the Jews. The door opens. There's Cleopas and his companion. Why are they back? They let their fellow disciples in. And Cleopas and his companion have a wonderful word to tell the rest of them. What Jesus had done. He had appeared to them. And how he had shown himself in the breaking of bread. After he had opened up the scriptures to them on the way to Emmaus. The disciples are stunned all the more 
as the evidence mounts in the evening hours of Resurrection Sunday. It had been Mary Magdalene first, and then the other women. And then as the text tells us, Simon Peter himself had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And now come Cleopas and his companions saying that Jesus is alive. The disciples don't know what to think. There's confusion. Some believe. Some don't know what to think. Others are wrestling within themselves what to make of this mounting evidence. Something has happened at the tomb, but what is it? What is it? The group of disciples need what Cleopas and his companion needed. They needed to hear the words of the risen Lord themselves. To see him. To have the, the dark fog of confusion and unbelief dispelled by his radiant appearance. And his instruction. Their eyes were still shut. Their hearts slow to believe. So in mercy. In our text tonight. We see Jesus. Coming again. To seek. His confused. and Benighted disciples. To give them light. To open their understanding. To give them peace. To show them. That he is indeed risen. He is indeed alive. And to prepare them for what he will have them to do in the near future. To be his witnesses that will bring the gospel of his cross and his empty tomb to the ends of the earth. So tonight we're going to continue looking at the history recorded in the Gospel of Luke of Resurrection Sunday. Looking now at Jesus' last appearance on Resurrection Sunday. The first being to Mary Magdalene, the second to the women, the third to Simon Peter, the fourth to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, and now late Resurrection Sunday night, Jesus' first appearance to his disciples as a group in the house in Jerusalem. And he comes. To give peace. Let's look at this text under the theme. The risen Lord stands in the midst. You notice in the first place. His peace giving appearance. Secondly his resurrection proving evidence. And finally his witness equipping purpose. As Cleopas excitedly relayed to the rest of the disciples. What had just happened to them earlier that evening. The risen Lord suddenly appears in the midst of them. And the text, the very language of the text, captures the suddenness and the unexpected nature of this appearance of the Lord Jesus. Verse 36, And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. And that language is striking. He was not there. And then, in a moment, he was there. Just as if he had been there the whole time. You can imagine the wide-eyed wonderment that quickly turns as the text informs us to dread terror as the disciples suddenly see the risen Lord standing in the midst. And what verse 36 does not say tells us as much as what it does say. 
Nothing is said about Jesus following Cleopas and his companion and knocking on the door, perhaps calling to be let in like Peter did after he was released from prison and knocked upon the door. Nothing is said about that. The text doesn't say that Jesus even miraculously unbolted the door and opened it up and made a grand entrance into the room where his disciples were gathered. Nothing of the sort. Jesus suddenly stood there. He appeared. He was miraculously present in the midst of his disciples. Just as he had passed through the stone walls of his tomb the morning of Resurrection Sunday, just as he had disappeared before the very eyes of Cleopas and his companion a few short hours prior to this, now he appears in the midst of his disciples. Curiosity can't resist asking, how is that possible? Ultimately, we have to be content with the fact that the Bible only gives us the fact this happened and doesn't explain to us how it is possible. The best explanation is simply this, that Jesus, having risen, And having entered into his state of exaltation, here employs his divine power in a different way than he did when he was in his state of humiliation. In his state of exaltation, Jesus employs his divine power to move himself around quickly, to appear and to disappear. We mustn't understand the text this way, that there is some inherent Ability in Jesus' glorified human nature such that it can disappear and reappear. That leads to questions such as, well, will we be able to do that when our bodies are raised and made like unto Jesus' glorious body? The answer is likely no. There's no mingling of Jesus' divine nature and human nature here such that the attribute of omnipresence now applies to Jesus' human nature. Oh, Jesus is only in one place at one time. The best explanation for his miraculous ability to appear and to disappear is simply that now, in his state of exaltation, he employs his divine power in a different way than he did when in the state of humiliation. And that's fitting. He's the risen Christ. Soon he will ascend to his Father in glory. And there is much he must do to prepare his disciples for that day. And thus, he goes about his Father's business yet, from place to place, ministering to his disciples. It's a display of his divine power and his divinity as the risen Lord. But now Jesus appeared and stood in the midst of his disciples with a very definite purpose. And that purpose comes out in the first words that he speaks. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, verse 36 said, and saith, peace, peace be unto you. That, first of all, is what Jesus appeared in order to give. It was a peace-giving appearance. Jesus' disciples needed peace. They did not have it right now. In the whirlwind of confusion, doubt, fear, grief, perplexity, 
all mingled together, all caught up in a tornado of emotions. As you read this text, you see the disciples, they're not even really acting in a logical way here. But that's completely understandable. Thinking about all that they had gone through in these past few days. If we were in their shoes, we would be much the same. Jesus appears to give them what they stand in need of most at this hour. That is peace. Is there anything as precious as peace? We sang Psalter 128, which in its versification of Psalm 46 gives a beautiful description of what peace is. In its third stanza, His grace, commanding wars to cease, brings peace. That's peace. From a negative point of view, peace is the cessation of warfare, of enmity, of hostility. And all that's connected with that fear, dread, confusion. Peace is rest. And positively, rest means harmony, tranquility. The absence of all that distresses. The presence, joy, rest. That's peace. And that's what Jesus came to bring. His disciples did not have peace. See that in the text. They're huddled together in this room. And as John informs us with with the doors closed, they're afraid. The report of the guards has already been circulating. But the disciples came and stole the body. The disciples are afraid that they might be next. The Jewish leaders might come for them. There's all the perplexity. What to do with all of the accounts that had been reported to them. Mary Magdalene and the women. And now Peter. They all testify that Jesus is alive. What do we do with that? Imagine them discussing all of this intensely behind closed doors. And they had their troubled consciences too. Each of them, the eleven now, scattered only a couple nights ago, fled and forsook the Lord Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And that guilt weighed upon them. And now they hear the mounting evidence that he's alive, but even if it is true, how can they even face him? Can they even hope for favor from him? After they faithlessly forsook him. So Jesus appears. When you understand the atmosphere into which he appears. You see the beauty and the grace and the mercy of the words that he speaks. The very first words out of his mouth. Peace be unto you. That's what the disciples needed to hear. Peace be unto you. And that's not a wish. It's a declaration. Really Jesus is pronouncing a benediction of sorts upon his disciples. He is declaring to them his own attitude towards them. An attitude of peace. And his word is a powerful word that brings to the heart that which it declares. His word is a peace making Word, peace be unto you. And in that word, there is a world of significance, isn't there? Jesus was saying, in his words, peace be unto you. This is the significance of everything 
that has happened these past few days. This is the significance of the cross. This is the significance of the empty tomb. This is the significance. Peace be unto you. It's Jesus' declaration of victory. Victory. Over his enemies and ours. Sin. Sinful man by nature doesn't have peace. There's no peace to the wicked. Man's at war with God. And it's the most horrible war that there is. It is a war that he will lose. And in losing that war, he will suffer eternal death in separation from God in hell In weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness. That is the end of fallen man. That is where those at war with God will end up. Jesus. He died on the cross for the sins of his people. Having been raised from the dead, the victor now appears in the midst of his fearful trouble. Guilt-laden disciples and he speaks the word that expresses the significance of that cross and that empty tomb. Peace be unto you. It's a declaration of victory over those enemies. Jesus, the prophesied Prince of Peace, has made peace. The greatest peace. The peace from which all peace flows. Peace with God. Peace that no sinner could ever make. Peace. That only the Prince of Peace could make. In fulfillment of Zechariah's prophetic song. In which he said this about the coming Messiah. That he would guide our feet into the way of peace. In fulfillment of the exclamation of the heavenly host at his own birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. Peace, victory. Peace be unto you, Jesus says. In that you hear forgiveness. Jesus' declaration of forgiveness to his disciples. Forgiveness for their sins. For their faithless forsaking of him. A word of peace meant to lift from their shoulders that burden of guilt and to carry it away. His words, peace be unto you, were his declaration, I forgive you and do not hold your sins against you. Peace be unto you. There is peace between me and you. There is peace between you and God. That's what I did. That's the cross. That's what the cross brings. That's what the empty tomb testifies. Peace. Peace. Now to apply that, we must understand. This history is recorded in the Holy Scriptures not merely as evidence of the Lord's resurrection. It is that. But Jesus' appearance in the midst of his disciples is recorded so that His peace-giving words might be proclaimed to the church of all ages. When these words are proclaimed 
Jesus stands in the midst, stands in our midst, and through His Word He declares unto you, beloved, peace be unto you. Hear His words that way. They're not just for the eleven. Those gathered in the room that day and for Cleopas and his companion, they're for you. This is what Jesus says to you, believer. Peace. This is what my cross has earned for you. Peace with God. This is what my empty tomb testifies to you. There is peace. You are not at war with God. You have been reconciled To him, by the blood of the cross, the gigantic obstacle to fellowship and life with God. Your mountain of sins, that incalculable debt that you daily add unto, that no longer stands in the way. Christ has removed it. He's reconciled you to God. He's made peace. There is harmony. There is fellowship. Peace be unto you. In this word, Jesus addresses you and me as we struggle with the burden of our guilt. Because day by day, when we transgress God's covenant, and as His children willfully, knowingly disobey our Father, we faithlessly forsake our covenant friend sovereign. We turn our backs on Him. We say, sin is better than you are. The pleasures of sin are more to me than the pleasures of Thy covenant and of Thy grace and of fellowship with Thee. We forsake God. The word of the Savior who died for us, the word of the Gospel is, peace be unto you. I forgive your sins. I take your guilt Away. I paid for it. The cross. And here's the empty tomb, which is the confirmation, the proof, the seal. See, your sins are paid for. I took them upon myself, Christ says. And I went down into the depths of the grave. And I paid for them. The wages of sin is death. But because I paid for them, death could not hold me. And on the third day, I burst forth from the tomb in glorious life. Which means your sins are gone. And you're not liable to suffer punishment for them. Peace be unto you. We have peace with God. And when we have peace with God, that peace overflows into every area of our life. It fills us as a vessel to the brim. It calms fears. It sustains us in tribulation. It helps us in confusion. Peace. True peace. Whatever your circumstances are right now, whatever your sufferings are, whatever storm rages around you, in the midst of it, Jesus speaks peace. Think of Him on the ship, the Sea of Galilee. Be And his powerful word calmed the wind and the sea was made placid. That's the peacemaker. That's the prince of peace. That's our crucified and risen savior. That's his word to us. Peace be unto you. Now, we understand that when Jesus speaks peace, 
It doesn't necessarily mean He's immediately going to calm all of the storms that rage around us. But His Gospel calms the storm within. Gives us that true peace. The peace of knowing that we are His. That nothing can separate us from His love. That we belong to Him body and soul. That we have immortal life in Him. An inheritance incorruptible. And that nothing, nothing in this life, however hard, however painful, can ever undo what He has done for us. When we have that peace, we're on a rock. And that rock cannot be moved. Cannot be moved. Let's become like little children. The little child is afraid and the little child flees to, to father. Father calms the little child. It will be all right. And that word is enough. Well, in the gospel, God says that to us, his children. Peace be unto you. It will. It will be all right. Whatever our trials are right now. It will turn out for good. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Hear the words of the risen Savior. Peace be unto you. That was the Lord's Supper this morning. Came to the table. And we partook of the sign and seal of his broken body and shed blood. And it was a visible proclamation. You have peace with God. Jesus by His Spirit, stood in the midst, and in the sacrament proclaimed that to us. Peace. Peace. It was a feast of peace. We tasted the sweetness of that peace. Having been at this table, let's carry that peace into the week ahead. Into the storminess of this world. Can't be blown away. Can't be taken away. Have the peace of Christ. But now Jesus appeared to his disciples to give peace. But part of that meant proving his resurrection. His bodily resurrection. And so having given those words that addressed the immediate need of his disciples. Jesus then proceeds to give his resurrection proving evidence. And yet... When we read through the text, it's striking that at first it seems as though the disciples don't even hear Jesus' words, peace be unto you. Because as we read on, we discover that as soon as Jesus appears, they're terrified and affrighted. That's verse 37. They supposed that they had seen a spirit. That might strike us as odd had they not been just discussing the things that they had heard, the testimony of the women, of Mary Magdalene and of Peter, who had seen the risen Lord, should not the appearance of Christ have immediately confirmed those testimonies? Well, it appears that there was confusion. It appears that some, if not most of them in the room, either did not believe the testimony of the women, or were confused and thought that Jesus' resurrection was not a physical resurrection, that perhaps he had appeared As a spirit. And so when they see Jesus, they're immediately frightened. And we can understand that. 
You imagine suddenly a man you thought was dead appears to you. They thought he was a spirit. And so Jesus calms them in verse 38. Why are ye troubled and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? As Jesus often does, he uses questions. The thrust of the question is you don't have a reason to be afraid. You don't have a reason for your minds to be racing right now. Then he lays before them the resurrection proving evidence. It is I, myself, risen. There are two pieces of evidence. First, to prove his identity, his bodily resurrection, Jesus shows them his hands and his feet. That's verse 39. Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. Look, take note, Jesus extends his hands and allows them to look upon his hands. And you can imagine the disciples in that room forming a tightly packed circle around Jesus as they examine his hands and their real hands. You can even see... Undoubtedly, the nail prints upon his hands and upon his feet. And Jesus goes farther than that. He says, handle me. That is, touch me. Take in the evidence of my resurrection, not only through sight, but through the sense of touch. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as ye see I have. Disciples, touch the Lord. Real flesh. Their hands don't pass through vapor. They don't pass through an apparition. Not a spirit, but real flesh. Real bones. They can feel the hardness, the firmness of bone under their fingers. Jesus is risen. And he's not just a spirit, but he has a body, the same body that went into the grave. Flesh, bone. He is still flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. A real man, as human as they are. Now at this point, perhaps a question enters our mind. Why did Jesus allow his disciples to touch him at this point? After all, remember what happened that morning at the tomb with Mary Magdalene? After Jesus had disclosed his identity to her with that powerful saying of her name, Mary, she had cried, Rabboni, and tried to touch him. And Jesus said, touch me not, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended unto my Father. Now Jesus invites his disciples to touch him, to handle him. Well, the explanation for this is the fact that Jesus had to teach these followers differently. From a certain perspective, Mary Magdalene was farther along than the other disciples were. In her cry, Rabboni, we hear faith. She believed that this was Jesus, that he was risen from the dead. And so immediately Jesus goes to teaching her the lesson she would have to learn that he had not arisen to go back to his original life on earth, not to go back to the way things were. He would soon ascend to his father. 
But we see the disciples gathered in the room here, they're on a different level at this point. Many of them do not believe he is risen. Some of them do not think his body has risen. And so he condescends to their weakness. and lets them touch his hands and his feet to prove to them the reality of his body, the resurrection of his body, and that he is the very same Jesus with whom they had walked. He's alive. He is risen. Thus, the Apostle John would later be able to write from experience, 1 John 1 verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. It was too much for the disciples. The text says, some of them could not believe for joy. They wondered. So Jesus gives yet another resurrection proving evidence. Verses 41 through 43. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. They had had their meal that night and it seemed that there were leftovers from that meal. And so someone grabbed a piece of fish and a piece of a honeycomb and brought it to Jesus. And Jesus took it and he ate in front of them. And here our curiosity comes to the fore again, doesn't it? Why did Jesus have to eat? Does his resurrection body need nourishment from food? Ultimately, we can't answer that. Though we know that his resurrection body had passed beyond death. He had immortal life. His body was incorruptible. And so it's not the case that if he didn't eat, his body would become weak and eventually starve. He had passed beyond that. And so it's not likely that Jesus eats here because he's hungry or that he even needs nourishment from food. But rather, the reason Jesus eats here comes out in the last part of verse 43. And did eat before them. He does this to prove, again, his real humanity. That he is risen in the body. He eats in front of them. Why? There's nothing more creaturely. There's nothing more human than eating a meal. And even if Jesus did not need this earthly food for his nourishment, he still had a body. He still had the ability to eat and to enjoy food. And his doing so proves his humanity. In the strongest possible way, he's still a man. Still one of us. In fact, the Apostle Peter later, in Acts 10, when he is speaking to Cornelius the centurion, appeals to this event as an evidence of Jesus' real bodily resurrection. Acts 10 verses 40 and 41. There Peter says, Him, that is Jesus, God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose 
the dead. Yet another piece of evidence proving beyond dispute the Lord is risen indeed. It points ahead. Regardless of whether Jesus needs nourishment from food, points ahead. The fact that he will one day eat with us again. Drink of the fruit of the vine as he promised. The kingdom of heaven. And that gets to some important application. Jesus' resurrection proving evidence is for us too. And it comforts us as well. And it comforts us in this. It shows us that Jesus is still our Emmanuel. Jesus' resurrection is a resurrection in our human nature. Jesus did not merely assume our human nature in order to pay for sin in our human nature. And then he sheds our human nature the way you would cast a pair of dirty clothes off of you. But he assumed our human nature, yes, to pay for our sin in that human nature, but then to lift up our human nature unto glory. He was raised in our human nature that he might impart salvation, blessings, and life to us. And that he might forever remain God with us in the closest and most intimate way. And that comes out here. The glorified risen Christ eats a piece of fish and honeycomb with his disciples. He is near to us. He is like us. And he forever shall be near and like us. Here's a glimpse of heaven. Jesus will forever be our Emmanuel, through whom we fellowship with God in the closest possible way. In Jesus, God makes his tabernacle with men. That comes out so beautifully in this text. That comforts us. That's what heaven is like. Dwelling with. Sitting at meat with. Emmanuel. This comforts us too in that it shows. That our salvation is an accomplished fact. Jesus rose. In the body. He's still a real man. After his resurrection. And that's necessary for our salvation. Insofar as our salvation depends upon the reality of his body. As the Belgic Confession says. Everything that Jesus will redeem. He must first assume. But after he has assumed it. He must keep it. So that he might impart to us. Human life. Everlasting human life. He must remain one of us that he may continue as our head and mediator. And that's what we see here. Jesus proves his real humanity and the reality of his body. That testifies to us our salvation is accomplished. And that the blessings he has obtained, he now imparts to us as the living Savior. As the living Savior who is one 
of us. Very God and very man. So Jesus appeared to his disciples to give them peace. He appeared to them to prove his resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt. Finally, Jesus appeared to make them his witnesses. He had a witness-equipping purpose. And that's what comes out in the remainder of the text. Jesus appeared to his disciples in order to teach them the very same lesson that he taught the two troubled travelers on the road to Emmaus. Just like those two troubled travelers, the disciples in the room did not understand the meaning of the cross. Or the resurrection for that matter, which they still doubted. And so Jesus appears to them to give them that understanding to expound the scriptures. And all of the scriptures concerning himself to expound them to his disciples. Thus we read in verse 44, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Just like on the road to Emmaus, now in the house in Jerusalem, Jesus opens the scriptures. And he goes from the law of Moses, the opening chapters of the Old Testament, and he goes through the Psalms and all of the prophets and explains what the Bible teaches about himself. Verses 45 and 46 capture the core. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Opened their eyes. A sovereign act of his grace. So that those words which they forgot, the words he had taught them throughout his ministry, and the scriptures that they did not understand, now they grasped. With a new spiritual understanding, they came to see that the Messiah had to suffer to enter into glory. That the way of suffering was the way to his glory. That the way to establish his kingdom was first by going to the cross. That he is the Savior, precisely by dying for the sins of his people. And in that dawning of understanding, the words Jesus spoke, peace be unto you. Flooded their hearts with peace. They understood the gospel of salvation. They understood it. They were made to understand it. So that, as verses 47 through 49 say, so that they could be his witnesses. So that they could go into all the world and to preach repentance and remission of sins. In his name. There's the whole New Testament. That's what's to come. The proclamation of this gospel. That's where we are. The disciples were sent out. Jesus sent ones. They brought that gospel to the ends of the earth. Equipped. By the Lord Jesus Christ. And then by the Holy Spirit. Who would be poured out on Pentecost. Here promised in verse 49. We are here today. 
because of this work of Christ. Making his disciples, his witnesses, to bring that gospel of peace. So now we sit in this sanctuary and hear Jesus' words. Peace be unto you. How thankful we should be for this history. How personal it is. This is the history of our salvation as well. As we live in this late stage of the New Testament, let us continue carrying that light of the gospel forward. We are his witnesses. Let us tell, let us speak, let us preach as churches the gospel of the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Until he comes again. Bringing perfect peace. With Emmanuel, we drink of the fruit of the vine, the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we give thee thanks for the victory of Jesus Christ, which brings us peace. Christ who died to take away our sins, who is risen to give us life, who is and forever shall remain our Emmanuel, God with us. Encourage us by this word to be thy witnesses in the midst of this world, speaking and declaring what thou hast done for our souls. And may the words of our Savior dwell in our hearts this night and in the days ahead, that peace may indeed be with us. Amen.